What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. My favorite thing about working in healthcare is the people. This industry brings together brilliant, highly motivated individuals who are driven by the opportunity to make a difference. My name is Hallie Tecco, and this is The Heart of Healthcare, a podcast where I'll be introducing you to the people on the ground moving the needle in public health and medicine. Asian American and Pacific Islanders are the fastest growing racial and ethnic group in the country, numbering more than 20 million people. The Asian population in the U.S. is a diverse group with origins from more than 20 countries in East and Southeast Asia and the Indian subcontinent. Asian American and Pacific Islanders make up one in five physicians and one in 11 nurses. While Asian Americans make up a disproportionate amount of healthcare workers, they are also facing increased discrimination at work and in their communities. Racism and hate crimes against Asian Americans have surged across the United States recently. A survey from the Pew Research Center found that 73% of Asian Americans have personally experienced discrimination because of their race or ethnicity, and 27% have been subjected to slurs or jokes just since the start of the pandemic. What has the experience been like for Asian American healthcare workers amidst the pandemic? Today, I am talking to an advocate for gender and racial equity, Dr. Esther Chu. Dr. Chu is an emergency physician and a professor at the Oregon Health and Science University. She is a founding member of Equity Quotient, which assesses organizations' cultures to help create a culture of respect. She is also a health columnist for MSNBC. As a science communicator and health equity advocate, Dr. Chu has over 200,000 followers on Twitter. She uses social media to talk about racism and sexism in healthcare. Dr. Chu, welcome to the show. It's great to be on. Thank you, Hallie. So we are both from Cleveland, Ohio, <laughs> and we both interned at the Plain Dealer. Amazing. Uh, <laughs> tell our listeners about your background and what ultimately led you to the work that you do today. Well, I would love to hear how your internship went, but at that point, I was between my junior and senior year in college, and I knew only one thing about my future career, which is that I wanted to be a writer of some sort. So it was so wonderful to go back and have that opportunity. And the way they did it was they had us rotate all the interns. There was kind of this cohort of us and they had us rotate through all the different beats. You know, so you spent time on the police beat and the community story beat and the 
politics and, you know, you kind of went through all the different desks. And I would say for me, the theme of the summer was feeling that there was a role for me that was a, a little different than observing and being a good and accurate storyteller. I felt like there were a lot of situations where I went and did the reporting and felt like I wanted to just roll my sleeves in and hop in and, and, and help. And so that made me think a little bit differently about my career. And then ultimately that led me to medicine. And I think the funny thing is in medicine, I realized that so much of it depends on actually narrative. I mean, listening to a parent's, to a patient's narrative, uh, one of the primary things I'll say to students and other learners at the bedside is you just presented a patient to me, but I don't understand the narrative, you know, like mm. what happened that landed them here? You know, mm. how did their symptoms all come together? Because you need to know the story to make a diagnosis. And then I also found that, of course, I, I think I have a renewed appreciation for the reporters and the editors I met way back when at the plain dealer, because I understood what they are doing a lot of times um, is such an important part of advocacy and change. And so I've kind of come first full circle and I'm now starting to write more again for public audiences. And I, I really think of that as part of the essential work that I do as a physician is connecting to the public, making sure they understand what's happening from a healthcare and public health standpoint, trying to frame it in a way that connects what we see to the way that whole communities um, need to take action and understand why we advocate for certain policies. So, um, so those, those two roles, I think those two career paths have really come together and I yeah. think I'm, you know, not that far from where I was when I wanted to <laughs> write to make a difference. Yeah. Maybe you can take up uh, the health beat at the plain dealer again. I'm sure oh, they would love to have you. But. <laughs> I wonder if they would hire me back after all these years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did the same rotation, and my favorite one. I loved working with the food team. So <gasps> I remember vividly they were like doing the perfect cob salad, and I had no idea what a cob <laughs> salad was. That was like really fancy. Um, but I just remember them kind of. I remember the photo shoot that I was helping assist. I remember talking to the reporter who was really dissecting like the art of a Cobb salad. But it's a it's a great publication. And it's fun that we both kind of had uh, an experience there that shaped who we became and what we've done in healthcare. So really what I want to talk to you about today is the racism and hate crimes against Asian Americans, which yeah. has really surged across the U.S. recently. Can you talk to us about kind of the experience and what's been happening for Asian American health workers amidst the pandemic? Yeah, it's been so striking and surprising from really early on. And I think a lot of that was driven by the rhetoric used by the prior administration, the whole labeling of the coronavirus as the China virus. And that language just exploded in March and April of last year. And it it did translate in the in the hospital setting. I mean, I had, there was a colleague at my hospital who was part of an incident where a coworker, actually not even a patient, but a coworker basically accused her and her people of bringing the virus to us. And I had not as explicit things, but I had people who felt that I had some closer connection to the virus than, you know, than the average person. Like we had a a friend. Other Americans. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And, and, you know, we had a a friend who was like, should we be having, this was like 
really early on, maybe February of last year when people were still gathering and we had dinner plans and he was like, are there any special things we need to think about having dinner with Esther, given that she has so many Asian relatives or something like that? Wow. And we were like, <laughs> what? Wow. Yeah. And I mean, it wasn't like, you know, I was flying back and forth to the epicenter of the, of where the, the outbreak was first noted to happen. And so, and, you know, by then it was well before we knew that the virus was already circulating in the United States. But I think some of our, the gut reactions to that were to look very warily at Asian colleagues. And then that really translated as we saw to the kind of really xenophobia and explicit hate crimes that happened to Asian Americans across the country. And I think one of the very scary and sad things about it is how much our elders bore the brunt of that. And, uh, you know, there were a lot of attacks on elderly Asian people. And you think of, of what it is to feel that you should attack the most vulnerable of this population and how much, how much hate has to be there for you to justify that. And it's, it's just been a really, really terrible thing. And then of course, you know, I mean, this is, this is not just healthcare workers, it's everybody. Uh, when I talk to my friends across, you know, across industries, there are people, especially, you know, recently with those attacks on Michelle Go and Christina Yuna Lee, um, I know a lot of women who stopped going to work, you know, felt like um, they needed to stay at home or newly, purchased pepper spray or took different routes or started commuting with a friend. Um, I mean, it really has felt like it has changed the behavior a lot, a lot of my peers and they walk around with a lot of, a lot more daily fear of their personal safety. And that's in New York City. I mean, this is happening everywhere, yeah. even in, in places where you think are, are more progressive and safer for everyone. Right. Where you think... The whole point of those places is the diversity and how everyone feels like they have a place there and, and they feel specifically pulled out into people's consciousness and their hateful consciousness and, and targeted in that way. Which is, you know, that's the funny thing about being Asian is that in so many settings you feel totally invisible. And then when you're when you're visible, mm. it's in this really hateful way, you know? So it's like, mm. no, 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 we want to be both visible, but also positively visible. Um, yeah. And it's, um, I think that is that, duality, invisibility, or the target of hate, those are two really difficult extremes to bounce back and forth between. So what is the impact of the, the added fear and trauma from seeing this happen to others? What sort of mental health impact does that have on people? Yeah, that's some of the answer is it remains to be seen. I mean, Asian and Pacific Islander mental health has always been a really difficult topic. First of all, because the stigma against mental health is so high in these communities in general that it's been very hard, even at baseline before the pandemic, it's always been hard to figure out exactly what that signal is and um, and to adequately collect data and understand incidents and prevalence. I think another piece of it is that we don't do a good job in recognizing the heterogeneity of these populations. When we, when we say Asian American Pacific Islander populations, we're talking about people from more than 40 countries and there's over 100 different languages. And so often the data that we did have when Asian and Pacific Islanders are included in research, we find that not acknowledging the heterogeneity can kind of blur out any effect, you know? So you mix in all these disparate populations and within there is some really concerning mental health 
statistics and some that are, you know, less concerning than say the population average, but they're all lumped together. And so it's just like, okay, as a group, they seem to be doing okay. Um, and you completely erase the experience of some groups that really have no recognition, no resources and no access for a lot of reasons. And I think that was a problem. All these were problems way before the pandemic. I think a lot of Asian Americans, English is not their first language. Um, and again, because of the heterogeneity, the idea of finding someone who's culturally concordant or even just has access to interpreters easily so that you feel that you can go and access services that are understanding of you and your belief system and your parameters around receiving mental health care, those things were were not as accessible as they should have been. So I think there's a lot of barriers to knowing. I mean, but we anecdotally, you know, qualitatively, it really seems like this is such a difficult time for, in general, for this large and very heterogeneous group. And, and there's some specific reasons why, you know, I think the unemployment during COVID-19 has disproportionately affected Asian Americans. And you could see it. I mean, really mm. early on as part of this sinophobia, people were selectively stepping away from Asian businesses. Um, in spring of 2020, there were wow. a lot of us who were concerned. You could just walk by a, a string of restaurants and it, at least even that when, you know, people were not we're starting to not dine indoors, but the ones they were stepping away from and not even standing in line for takeout were the Asian restaurants around town. There were a bunch of us who did a campaign mm. to try to keep some of these businesses open. But yeah. was the campaign effective? You know, I think after that, we went into March and the really scary times. And I think yeah. everyone started getting shut down. Mm. But I, I do think, you know, if you look at things like, you know, food service and retail, you think about laundromats, beauty services. I mean, all of those were work sectors that had incredibly high failure rates and layoff rates and those disproportionately affected Asian and Pacific Islander communities. And so I think just the unemployment, the financial stress, the poverty that resulted, no doubt has been a huge stressor, we know those things contribute to psychological distress. And so, mm. I mean, and also, again, a lot of Asian American refugee communities that already had high rates of of PTSD and, and prior trauma and, and these uh, kind of stressors that come with being uh, in, in a refugee community. And I think we, we know that these things uh, surely only got worse given the way that the hatred, the racism, and then the financial stressors have played out. So um, I think we're still in the process of data collection and trying as an Asian American community and a scientific community, I think we're all trying to get to push for better data collection and disaggregation. But the truth is throughout the course of the pandemic, we are the group that has had the least data collection. There's a lot of states that have to lump in, for example, Asian communities and Pacific Islander communities into just an other category because we just don't have the practice of really collecting good data among Asian American and Pacific Islanders. So I, yeah. I think what we'll find is answering that question about what exactly happened to mental health rates over the course of the pandemic will be incomplete and will be slow to come. But I, I think we all have a sense that there are grave needs there that we'll be, we'll be chasing for a long time. Yeah. So you've said that a few times a year, a patient in the ER, in the ER while you're working will actually refuse care from you because of your race. And you've talked about this a little bit. Can you share more about this experience? Yeah, that's a, a pretty steady note where I work. I mean, Oregon has a long history of mm. uh, racism, of white supremacy. And I work at a tertiary care center where we get 
patients who come in from all over. You know, they're referred in for traumas and other illnesses from all over the state. And so there are people with a lot of different and extreme political beliefs and personal beliefs about race and about my race specifically. And then I think the ER is a time where those things come to the surface in a really naked way because people are in extreme circumstances and they're scared or they're hurt or they're ill or they're altered in some way. And so there's no, you know, social norms and politeness goes out the window when people really say what they're thinking. And I think it's okay. I, I mean, I have a lot of agency in that setting. I have great colleagues and staff who back me up. And I think we also have a pretty good tolerance for people who come in who say, are their worst selves in that moment because of all these factors, you know? So we, I I think we're pretty used to being like, okay, that person is saying pretty awful things. And it's not like those things aren't there, but we do treat it differently when someone's say completely delirious because they're septic or, or they're intoxicated and they've just been in a car accident. Who knows what's going on in their brain? So I think, or they're in for a psychiatric emergency and really like these horrible things are part of the way that they have delusions um, about their world. And so I, I do think in a lot of circumstances, there are, modifying factors. (laughs) I'm not saying it makes it go away and and they are just, you know, they have lovely views when they're, you know, at their baseline, but, uh, but I do think we appreciate that we often see people at their worst moments. And so what do the employers need to do when things like this happen? What's the responsibility? Because you also need to keep your employees safe and protect them from this sort of overt racism. Yeah, it's really true. And of course, we have a responsibility to our learners, too, that that is not okay. Mm. That, you know, you don't come in and and somebody says something like that and, oh, you just keep on going like everything's normal. So I I do think we try to acknowledge it. And, you know, we have pretty great hospital policies at that at this point about things like that. And so, I mean, I have even in my shift just pulled up our company webpage where, you know, and we have this whole policy about being respectful to others. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, a, a couple of times a month for I'll patients, pull, for patients, patients yeah, for, for anybody mm-hmm. in the community, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, yeah. um, you know, I'll just pull it out and sort of be like, Oh, I just wanted to share a respect for all policy. You may have seen the posters around campus. And if you can abide, if you can't abide by these, then you need to leave. And, you know, it, uh, it comes up. I mean, it's not just, of course, racism that comes up. It's all kinds of behaviors, I'm sure. violence towards staff or, or certain types of behaviors. And so we can just pull it up and say, this is our policy. And, I, you know, I think the difficult thing comes in when somebody is, is clearly not, like I said, not themselves, if they're delirious or they're intoxicated or they're clinically unstable, we, we actually mm. can't kick them out. But if this yeah, is Yeah, that's their, what I was going to say. If, yeah. Yeah. Can you kick people out? I guess yeah. it, does, it depends on their status. It totally depends. I mean, Mm. there are certain patients who, if they're not safe to leave, we cannot just kick them out. We don't want to actually, in those circumstances, um, kick out, say, an unstable patient who might very well get super sick or even die if we were to discharge them abruptly without completing their care. So, um, but but sometimes you have the patient who is saying these things, behaving this way towards some of our staff and because of their race or ethnicity or sexual orientation or some other some other way that they have have hatred and they are not unstable and they are not delirious or intoxicated in any way they seem to be just them have full capability to comply by our rules and they are not rules for respect and they are not and um, and those patients we do we do ask to leave yeah so there are very overt racist acts that are happening within the healthcare system from patients, probably from colleagues, hopefully not as much from colleagues. Then there are these like microaggressions that Mm. 
people face. Can you talk to us about the microaggressions that you or you've seen with other Asian American Pacific Islander colleagues that kind of add up over time? It might not be something that at the moment feels big, but just at the weight of it just continues to add up as it happens. Yeah. I have this physical tick now whenever I say the word microaggressions. I can't do it without like putting my hand Mm. up in quotes around the micro because I do think those are felt so profoundly. And those Mm. are the kind of things that when you're in a group of of people, other Asian Americans, other people of color who are actually underrepresented in in healthcare uh, workforces, you get together and those are the kind of things that bubble to the surface. And I think Mm. it's because we often feel so gaslit by those experiences, you know, how dismissive people can be, how we're ignored, underheard. Um, You know, for Asian Americans, there are so many of us in healthcare, actually, we're disproportionately represented at the ground level at mm-hmm. medical schools and and in the in the beginning workforce and then we're completely absent at the top you know there's this bamboo ceiling mm. um, and it's because of the way that we are perceived as these worker bees who should mostly stay quiet and not have leadership roles or large voices um, mm. and aren't strategically gifted you know and i will hear people say these kind of things explicitly like we people will explicitly say oh you know our asian students are so good at test taking and they're such good students and they study hard and they work hard. And you don't hear other descriptors like leadership, like innovator, like Mm. strategists, just these kind of things. And you can just see how these ideas about people then limit their opportunity, then they don't have their ability to show how they can shine in these roles and it becomes these Mm. compounding things. I mean, that's of course the story of compounded disadvantage that minoritized people feel. And so, you know, I do, I, I see it a lot. And I see it more and more as people rise through their career because they've always done well in these things where they can kind of control a lot of aspects of their achievement. And then they get to a certain level and they feel like, wait, why did my, my potential seem to just taper off while this other person who's Mm. always been my exact peer, or maybe not even quite my peer in terms of achievement just seemed to be galloping beyond me. Mm. And then I I also think there's this way of, you know, it's like death by a thousand paper cuts, or maybe it's, you know, sometimes more than that. I do think there's a way that these experiences, the small slights, the way that people orient themselves to you in a room, um, the dynamic that you feel those, those kind of aggressions really do add up cumulatively and can, can be so, so demoralizing. Uh, and you start to feel that moral injury because nobody ever recognizes it. You rarely have it called out by a colleague, even someone who claims to be an ally, they rarely see those things. And so then you start to become disenchanted, even with people who are your close colleagues and champions. And, and I think it's very hard for, it's very hard to feel fully engaged or loyal to a workforce when mm. that is happening and all, all around you and nobody is calling it out. So those are really difficult. And I, I know that's a common experience among, yeah. among Asian Americans in, in healthcare often. And is this part of the, the model minority stereotype? Yeah, I do think that this is the model minority stereotype playing out, but I do also have a different take on it than I did when I was younger. I mean, when I was, say, in high school and we were all, I think, first talking about the model minority, this was in the 1980s and there was a Time or a Newsweek cover article about the model minority. And I remember at that point talking to peers about how it was 
a, a difficult thing because it imposed these uniform expectations on a population that was very heterogeneous. It didn't give us a lot of room to be individuals and to say, not be that person who excelled. And of course, if you look at all these people represented under the umbrella of Asian Americans to whom the model minority is applied, I mean, there's huge heterogeneity in every way. I mean, it represents one of the biggest income gaps in the country. So it it felt really constraining and stressful in that way. But I always understood it when I was younger to say that you're supposed to excel in all ways. And as I go through my career, I see that there's this other insidious part of it, which is that you are supposed to excel, but in a certain way, in a quiet way, in not one that has ambition for yourself. Mm. Um, you were meant to be the worker be here. You shouldn't have higher aspirations. And actually part of the model minority is that you don't want those things, that you don't complain when you don't get them, that you're not seen as a true leader, as someone who is, say, speaks up or says uncomfortable things or or seen as say, I think there are just certain characteristics. You're not a visionary. You're not, you know, you're not expected to accelerate up after a certain point. So yeah. I, I see it as a really, as really confining, not just anticipating that you're going to accelerate in on a certain path or, or at a certain pace or to a certain extent. So, so it's both this huge imposed uniform expectation, but also one that has clear parameters that, that is, that is very constraining in that way. Yeah. And then how about just adding on being a female? There's oh, a lot of what yeah. you were saying. I was like nodding <laughs> my head like, okay, I've I've felt that and I'm a white woman, but is it how how does that add to it also being an Asian American woman? Uh, I mean, it's so interesting once you get to any intersectionality too. I mm. mean, there was a series of studies at Harvard that looked at math performance and how much that was influenced by culturally defined expectations rather than your own you know, your own uh, inherent ability. Um, so they did all these studies where they played with gender and Asian race. Um, I have you ever seen these? They're so no. hilarious. Yeah, they're hysterical. So what they would do is they would take people going into a math test and they would just have a little subtle cue about their Asianness. So, I mean, it wasn't like, hi, you're Asian, we expect you to do well, but they would just make a little reminder. And actually students who were reminded that they were Asian before going into a math test would do better. It's, it's called like stereotype satisfaction, wow. where when there, there's this expectation that's imposed upon you, you kind of might mm. rise to the occasion. But then they did this thing where they they added this reminder about your gender. You know, so if you're an Asian female, you got reminded that you were female and, uh, you know, that you were a girl. And if you were uh, an Asian boy or young man, you were reminded about that. And actually the the gender either compounded your performance or brought it down. So for women, reminder of their gender brought down their math scores, even if they wow. were Asian. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, and and for the guys, it was the opposite. I mean, knowing that you're an Asian, I do this jokingly to my 14-year-old kid when he I dropped him off early for a math test the other day. And I was like, remember, you're an Asian boy. And he was like, just rolled his eyes. And he was like, oh my God, mom. Um, and I you're mean, like, but I was... it's an evidence-backed evidence way to improve your performance on this I test. No, And, you know, wow. later I was like, you know, I hate that stuff, right? Like I was just kidding. And he was like, yeah, I know, mom. Yeah. But um, I was like, maybe I'll just take advantage of this, you know, psychological test I once heard that really disgusted me. But um, but I do think, you know, we, we impose a lot of expectations on people uh, for their performance, for their natural ability. And then the the absolutely concerning thing is how much people absorb that and begin to believe that themselves. And that happens from a very young age, you know, from when kids are five or six, they start to absorb these cultural expectations about 
how much they can excel depending on their superficial characteristics. And so I think it is uh, very interesting to me um, to to think about the intersectional component. And, you know, you add on the multitudes of other identities that we have in terms of sexual orientation and, you know, gender preference and um, yeah. poverty, you know, being first generation, add in, all, you know, what, what your first language is, all these things that kind of get all wrapped up uh, in how people make assumptions about you message, you know, those assumptions to you and then how much you try to operate just according to your own, you know, your own ability, interests, ambitions, and and how much of that stuff really gets internalized and, and starts to get in your way from the outside and from the inside. We'll be right back after the break. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You've used your platform, which is now enormous, to talk openly about racism and sexism in healthcare. Is this something that just slowly, day by day, you were sharing your thoughts and then now here you are? Was this something that you've always wanted to do? Can you tell us a little bit more about the activist platform that you've created? Yeah, I mean, I think social media has come together nicely for me in a number of ways. One is because I I, I often feel that I'm sitting there with observations and thoughts that no one else seems to have, or at least they don't vocalize, always. I mean, I've just... I think from when I was really young would sit there and be like, is my brain odd or is anybody else seeing this? You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I, I think whenever you're, I mean, I went into a very male dominated field and, um, you know, and, and one that is emergency not, medicine, emergency medicine. Yeah. Still okay. remains very male dominated. Yep. And it, uh, it, it, it isn't always the places I've worked on always super diverse ones. And so there are times where I feel like, I probably am observing that this because I am a 
woman of color in emergency medicine. And I just look around to my peers and they're all very nice, but I think often I have a window into things that, that really nobody else is going to be like, yeah, yeah. You know, I see that too. And so going to social media is a way, I mean, from a scholarly aspect, from every way, when you're in a small department, it often isn't possible to find commonality at your institution, whether in your own department, I found that on social media, I could find other people who saw things the way that I did and, and actually knew and understood a lot more. And so it became a really a great place for me to, to be open about these observations and find other people who observe the same things and, and just find that we could share things like, well, how do you cope with that? How do we change it? Um, mm. And uh, how do we uh, speak up for people who really are not in a position to speak up. And so it's been cathartic, you know, it's, there's a mental health component to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I community. think there's, just, yeah, just finding yeah. community, not feeling gaslit all the time, feeling yeah. that my experiences and my observations are real and valid. Yeah. And then, um, you know, and, and just feeling that you're right. It's, it's feeling that connection with other people who fully understand I mean, there are plenty of people who are like, oh, now that you explained it to me, I really can see that and I want to support you. And that's, that is a certain type of ally, but there is something so special about people who are like, oh my gosh, the same exact thing mm-hmm. happened to me at work. And this is, this is how we really need to talk about it. So um, I'm sure, right. I'm sure you get trolls though. Oh gosh, it's horrible. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, I talked to um, Dr. Megan Ranney many podcast ago um, about kind of the trolls and the nasty letters that she was getting and how she kind of continued to use the platform in the way that she felt was really important to use her voice. So curious for you, the sort of what sort of stuff (laughs) are you it makes it difficult to do your job? And then how do you kind of push that aside and stay focused on your goal with social media? Yeah, I mean, that has been such a prominent part of my experience online that I I actually, I have such a huge interest in online safety. And I mean, I have a whole safety sheet that I share with other people who who I notice are experiencing a lot of trolls and specific threats. There are a lot of services now where you can block people en masse. And so I, I see that, you know, it's really becoming a whole industry trying to protect people. And, you know, there's a lot of steps I've taken, like really trying to take my contact information, information about my family offline, because mm-hmm. um, people were, uh, believe it or not, people are going after my kids. Um, wow. And, uh, you know, and so there've been times where I'm like, okay, you know, you have to stop and just do some due diligence to protect your family. Yeah. And then, but then I think I've gotten to a place where, I mean, I have so many filters on, you know, mm. and I have, uh, the other thing I, I would say is that the good balances out that and the good is very personal. Like the trolling feels impersonal. You know, mm. people are coming trolling. They don't know who I am. Yeah. Um, they see that I have pronouns say, you know, my mm-hmm. my <laughs> identified pronouns are in my profile and because of what I represent, they're coming after me. And then I think ultimately it's become very important for me to, I, I mean, I don't actually, I don't block people who seem human, you know, mm. Um if you're David seven nine three four six two with like a you know with, with like two a, followers and yeah, yeah with two followers and you have like a Confederate flag as your you know mm-hmm. as your avatar I'm like okay this feels manufactured you know I yeah. block those a lot but uh, but if it seems like a real human I try not to block uh, because I feel unless they're being like really abusive just because I feel like I often buried in there is some valid feedback too and I think it's important to to recognize when. Uh, I mean, sometimes somebody who seems like a total troll will be like, well, that wasn't very respectful. And I'll think, huh, 
that wasn't very respectful mm-hmm. what I did, you know? And yeah. so, it, and I think there's often a lot of truth buried in there. So, um, you know, I try to strike a balance between protecting my mental health and not making it seem like a trash heap every time I log in, um, yeah. but also having enough open that I can see valid criticism and not, not just, I don't filter so that all I hear is like, yay, you're yeah. so great. Cause I think that is probably not good for you either. I, I wouldn't mind that. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a role for that. There's a time and place for sure. So I feel like, you know, med Twitter is, is, is new and hearing doctors speak up politically about policies that they believe in. All of this is something that did not exist before social media, or at least didn't exist in a way that was to the masses the way it does now. How have like healthcare organizations dealt with their employees that are now going on the record to with very large audiences about their personal beliefs? Yeah, it's such a mixed bag. And I think in the way that institutions are handling it, makes it seem still like a brave new world, you know, where things are just changing so much because, I mean, you wouldn't believe the range. I have friends with big public platforms whose hospitals have told them you must not post anymore or or create an anonymous account because this is not professional. Oh, And I have had friends in institutions who are like, have you created your social media profile yet? Uh, Because we'd like to post that on your profile page. And (laughs) it's important to us that you are tag us in Mm -hmm. when you mention your research because they want the reflected glory, you know? And and they're like, oh, so now I have to do it. Can you help me set something up? Because my (laughs) hospital's feeling like, why don't I tweet more? And it's like, oh my gosh, this couldn't be more whiplashy, you know? Yeah. And I think, I will be honest, I think I I kind of like the way that my hospital does it. I mean, there's an open door between very early on when I was like, oh, wow, I have some followers. I met with the head of our hospital and with media relations. And we just kind of talked, you know, about what are some reasonable parameters for my posting? Since even though I don't, I'm not an official count of the university, I am associated with them. And I was starting to become more public on social media. And, and what kinds of things would they like, just like to know ahead of time? I mean, they, they were very much like, we want to be supportive of you as an individual. We understand that your views might not always agree with us and might actually reflect poorly on us, but, but, are there some things we could have a heads up about? And, you know, and I, I do, I reach out to them really frequently. Like I'll say, uh, I'm, I'm writing about this and um, you might want to know, cause I have a feeling there'll be reactions to it or, or likewise, they'll reach out and say, you know, just in case you're on the news this week or posting things like these, this is kind of what we felt like were good messages about this COVID topic or whatever. And there's just this really nice relationship where I feel like I am able to be certainly like a, a professional who works there, but also a private person who has this thing, but, and we communicate and we try to be really respectful and aware of each other. And so that, that to me is like a really great way. I mean, I think what we need to do as a whole specialty of medicine is start having more for, I mean, advocacy has always been out there. I mean, well, before social media took off in this way, you know, people like Don Berwick, um, you know, we're, we're talking about how it is such our responsibility to talk about um, policy, things that affect the public, the health of the public. Um, and we cannot hide in our ivory towers anymore because, you know, what affects the person that we're treating right in front of us is so minimally the 
prescription that we're about to, to write. And it really is these huge, big system structures, political decisions that affect the neighborhoods where they live, the water they drink, you know, the education they're able to receive, everything, the air that they breathe, everything that determines their whole health and well-being. And so what are we doing just confined, you know, to our, our little scribbles in the hospital? And so um, and I think we all felt like we needed to show up in a bigger way. Many, many of us did. And social media is just one way that it's doing that. But I think it's it's not going anywhere. And I think we need to build into our educational systems and into our, you know, into our all of our health system functions, how it is that we show up in a way that's effective and uh, can really make a difference for our patients. So I expect to see a lot more study, understanding, education, training around using it mostly for good. Yeah. So what else can healthcare organizations do to improve organizational culture and promote equity? I think we really need to think about how much inequity is built into our very structures and systems and processes. Uh, I think so much of that relies on our understanding the histories and where we came from and how things were built. And I, I think we need to really ask questions, foundational questions, whenever we bring in innovations. You know, there's a really great study published in a journal that I'm going to get wrong because I'm on the spot, um, but I think <laughs> Nature or Science, where they they looked at the impact of a care coordination system that was implemented, it was deployed across a very large health system. And the idea was to divert services more to patients who needed it most. And, you know, that's a wonderful impulse. And we frequently do that. We frequently say things like this whole population of patients needs something more. But the way that it was implemented was not sensitive to the way that the criteria were almost entirely racially determined. Um, And so what it meant basically was they were systematically diverting resources to the white patients above black patients. And I think we do these things all the time where we're like, here's a really great thing that will improve our efficiency, the quality of care, and we just deploy it. And this goes for all health policies. I mean, I'm studying one health policy related to pain um, that was intended to decrease opioid use across a whole population of Medicaid patients in Oregon. Wonderful impulse, you know, but we forgot that because of the way the system structures are built, the very systems and structures that we operate in, I'm not talking about an individual person going in intending to do harm, but an individual person going into a system and having to use the tools, the structures, the processes, the resources there. And just by doing that, no matter what your intent, you are often executing inequity because the system is messed up. Mm. And so, you know, the same thing happened with this this uh, pain policy that I'm looking at. When you look at the outcomes broken down by race and ethnicity, there's very different access to kind of services that we we're hoping to open up for the whole Medicaid population. Um, but, you know, I think we need to really stop trying to, I mean, not stop trying to change. It's like, of course, we're going to try to provide education and awareness on an individual level. But we yeah. do all that, which uh, amounts to hand-waving because we don't, we're unwilling to change the physical and, I mean, literally the physical structures of where we operate, but also yeah. like just, you know, the entire systems, you know. So we, we walk in and there's been a lot of literature about how our pulse oximeters work differently based on the color of your skin. Mm-hmm. And so how is a very well-intentioned, an- allegedly anti-racist healthcare provider supposed to provide equitable care when the equipment is racist. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And yeah. so, and I think, and so for me to operate in that system and not agitate against the equipment, but just, you know, feel good that I have good intent in my heart because I got some great training I and mean, that just doesn't work. And I think we are unwilling, less willing, less eager 
to change these hard fixed things um, that really amplify poor and inequitable care. And so I I would like to start there is really just interrogating the things that we don't question, the very walls, ceilings, spaces that we occupy um, and start start swapping out. Yeah, I agree. So um, we're almost up on time. My last question for you is what's next? What's next? For you. question. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I don't know. I I definitely am at an inflection point where I feel like I went into the pandemic one person and I came out another. Mm. And I, I just, I feel really interested in seeing what the next chapter brings. But I, I think what the pandemic has made me realize is that there's no one set career path. I'm, I'm really interested in, in trying something completely different, but, but also aiming for the same ultimate true North, which is how do we improve the health of the population um, in kind of big structural ways? Do you think there'll be a book in your future? Oh gosh, I'm having a hard time finishing like a you know 500 word <laughs> essay that I have to write today. Right. So that feels fair enough. Aspirational, but let's not <laughs> take anything off the table. Yes. <laughs> thank you. Amazing. All right, Dr. Chu, thank you so much for being here today and sharing all of your insights. We appreciate you. Oh, I appreciate the invitation. <laughs> Thanks for your time. You can follow Dr. Esther Chu on Twitter at Chu C H O O underscore E K. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Heart of Healthcare. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. The Heart of Healthcare is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producer is Brianna Seely. Our intern is Antonella Sterniolo. Our host is Hallie Tecco. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Brianna Seely. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnot.com. That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.